Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. dramatic intro to this very special edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. I'm Nikki Dakota, your host, joined in the studio today by the, we're just going to call him the storyboard artist of the ages. Been working with the Coen brothers for 20 years and counting. Also done some of the uh, more lovely movies that we've enjoyed over the years. We call him Friend and J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd, welcome. Yes, and you know, by the time this you'll hear this show, no Country for Old Men will probably be at a theater near you, and it is a fine motion picture. They got There's uh, my plug for our boys' movie. Which, uh, when Directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, written by uh, the novel Carmack McCarthy. And uh, Joel and Ethan did the film, film motion picture adaptation of this picture and it's really really good and that's when uh, been about a year ago that uh, you guys were working on that because that's when we cooked up this whole filmically perfect idea isn't that that's right, right. yeah yes. so uh, we are not alone in the studio uh, actually we are alone in the studio but joining us by the telephone line um, is a, a friend of yours Jay he's Todd. our man of the half hour today <laughs> ladies and gentlemen George Williman from Culpeper Virginia <laughs> the George. Library of Congress Boy, that music makes me feel like I should have put pants on. <laughs> oh. oh, crescendo. <laughs> you know, today, usually we discuss perfect movies on Filmically Perfect. Yes. But today, listen to that fine music. That should tell you something's going to happen. It's, it's really, special. Really, really big. Yeah. Our man at the Library of Congress, George Williman, is going to talk to you about film restoration and what he does at the Library of Congress. And how a man with humble beginnings in Springfield, Ohio, would go to uh, lay his hands upon some of the most notable movies <laughs> yeah, in and film, film history. And nitrate film that I've seen him burn in places and almost burn the places down. <laughs> <laughs> George Willeman's Traveling Road Show. He's going to tell you about all these things. And <laughs> we, uh, Nikki, Dakota, and, and I proudly present to you one of the finest, finest film historians that has ever walked this celluloid carpet known as motion pictures. George, welcome. <laughs> Gee, thank you. I don't know what to say now. Hey, George, what are you going to talk about today? You're going to tell us about what you do at the Library of Congress, right? Yeah, well, let, let me start out, I guess, preface this by, by the why we do this. Why, why do we put so much uh, effort into preserving these films? And the basic answer is that, that we've lost a lot of our film history. Um, more than 50% of all the films ever made are gone forever, and I think it's something like 80% of all the films made before the advent of sound are lost. That is so sad. That is just really a sad fact. Yeah, and then when you think of some of the films that have survived, that's even sadder, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we've, we've lost some classics, but, but the Polly Shore movies will always be with us. Um, it's kind of like watching Friends 24 hours <laughs> on television. Only it's the same kind of effect. But... The, um, the Library of Congress has always been, I mean, it is, first and foremost, it is Congress's library. It's there to serve the Congress. But the second thing is it's there to, to preserve the, especially the, the history and, and sort of the media world of, that, of America. And 
for many years, the library didn't collect motion pictures because they didn't have the room for them. Well, two reasons. One, they didn't have the room for them, and two, the films were nitrate, and they didn't have adequate, safe storage space for them. I mean, it, it, we should say the nitrate is highly flammable. Highly flammable. flammable. It be, yeah, it has to be kept in special special vaults. Um, you know, I don't know if you're, the listeners out there, sometimes you'll be in an old school, and you'll see the projection room in the, in the auditorium, and it'll have these huge concrete walls with big fire door on it and little teeny holes for the projector. They, they look very much like a, a, a wartime pillbox. But that was because this stuff would catch on fire in the 30s. Right, George? Right. And I've always heard that the, um, the, you know, the old projection booths were built very heavy and big metal screens so that when the film caught on fire... You wouldn't hear the projectionist screaming. <laughs> you say when, not even if. <laughs> and fun, I mean, what an uh, improbable medium at all. That uh, I mean, that so you take something that's highly flammable and put it fr- in front of a really hot bulb. But you see, know? they didn't have remember, plastic I mean, back then. You were running it. You're running it very fast past that. Uh, actually, it was an arc. It was like a carbon arc in the early days. And it's you know, you're running at least at least eighteen and more. You know, once we got into sound, up to twenty four frames per second. So. You're running about 90 feet per minute. I just hope that. it doesn't like, jam. Right. That was a big problem. If the film broke or jammed in the projector, it would immediately catch fire. Uh, there were little devices built into the projectors to prevent the fire from spreading outside of the lens area. And if they were properly installed, they worked. Now, George, you principally um, will take these original nitrate prints of these movies, these glorious movies that we've seen, um, and you will transfer them to plastic safety film, correct? Correct. That's that's our main task. Uh, formerly out at the uh, at the conservation center at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, and now being set up here in Culpeper, we would take the nitrates and we would transfer them originally onto a triacetate safety film, which was used for many years. But now we've pretty much gone totally to a F-star film, which is a polyester-based film. So all those leisure suits from the 70s are finally finding some good use. (laughs) Just another thing we do about the recycling and making the circles (laughs) complete. So did you, at what point, George Willeman, did you realize that your uh, love and and, and the work that you would uh, be most passionate about and find the most rewarding would be actually restoring these films? Well, I don't, I, uh, you know, it probably was sometime in the late 80s, early 90s. I actually started working for the library as a part-time job when I was going to Wright State, uh, getting a degree, a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Motion Picture. And we might add that our vaunted list of perfect movies was started before this. (laughs) Our original list goes back to 1982 when we were collecting all these perfect movies. Don't write for the list because we're not going to give it to you. You have to go to the show and listen to all the shows as we give them to you. So before you were actually standing next to the original negatives of all these films, you guys had started Oh, we had started this list and then George um, took his his knowledge of motion pictures, and then he went over to the Library of Congress, and, and that was during that time. But we had just a little bit of trivia for our show. We started the list right about that time, don't you think, George? Yes, we did. And it was so bizarre because, you know, I was going to school, and, and my professor, who was also a counselor, called me in one day and said, how would you like to inspect films for the Library of Congress? Because he knew even then I had always had an interest in, in older films, and and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, drive all the way to Washington to inspect films and get back here for school. And he said, no, they're right over at Wright-Patterson, which is 
less than a mile from the campus. And I went over there, and it was one of the best-kept secrets in the world that one of the single largest collections of nitrate motion pictures, I mean Hollywood motion pictures, was stored at Wright-Patterson. I didn't know it until I met you. No. And, and it's been there, and it had been there since uh, the mid '60s. And George and I, when we made college films, when we made our films in college, we would take our negatives and set them on double dim the the original negatives <laughs> of double indemnity, and you know, like if it's going to rub off, the rubbing elbows would be great. Still, yeah. that's we, really that's where cool. we kept our little movies that we made. Don't tread on me. It was a film we made. We we set that one on. Uh, Sunset Boulevard. Oh, that is really cool, though. Now, George, I'll I'll mention that you were kind enough after uh, we first had met and begun to do Filmically Perfect to allow me to come to the Wright Pat uh, storage vaults there with all these films, and you spent some time, and we walked from vault to vault, very cold, very cold. And and you pointed out to me the Wizard of Oz and some of the early uh, Disney and 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 so many films and and I have to mention that they all looked the same. They're sitting in silver <laughs> canisters, just you know, row after row after vault after vault, and, and yet still I felt completely special and delighted. And, Actually, Nikki, that, and was, somehow a, that magic. was a that was a can factory, and he <laughs> kind of tricked you. But there's something about it. There's something about just thinking. It's it's all in the mind, I guess, because really it's for the eyes. There's no real, real uh, spectacle, but my heavens, did well, I enjoy that? Sometimes George would Im- invite me over there, uh, and we would see something that they had restored. It would be like a Thomas Ince short, and which was something that was made. I don't know the teens, right, mm-hmm. George? Yeah. And then they would project it over there at the Library of Congress, and the people in that film. This is 1917 or something right around there. The people look like yesterday. Mm. It, this magic yeah. film, this nitrate with. Uh, ASA of two, these people look like they had just, they were there. Lillian Gish, she looked just as fresh as the day they shot her with a camera, and here it is almost 100 years later. If, there was, if there's been anything that I've learned from working there, it's, it's the truth about these old films in that, you know, the way early film and silent film was portrayed to the public as these scratchy, beat-up, choppy films where all the characters run around really fast and the acting is really hammy. And, yeah, there are some that are like that. But for the most part, um, if you can get a good good material and you can make a beautiful print off of it and you run it at the right speed, uh, it's very impressive. Well, a lot of people don't understand and realize nowadays is, you know, everything's set at a certain speed. But when they hand-cranked a camera, it wasn't goofy people jumping around with this no. silly music. What you had was these expert cameramen who could eyeball a car coming at like 20 or 30 miles an hour. And as the car went by the lens, he knew just how to slow down that camera to, you know, grab the focus and make it, give it that edge of desperation that they needed. And then as the car passed away, he would crank the the camera with a little bit different speed. So all these cameramen back there were these expert precision mechanics on how to get this this uh, visual impact of the image before you with with more finesse than they do now. I think. And, and you will see, you know, photographs and film of cameramen hand-cranking their cameras, and a lot of people go, well, why didn't they, you know, have motors on their cameras? And, well, it wasn't because they didn't have them. I mean, the, some of the early studios like Edison and, and I think Biograph even had motor-driven cameras by 1900, but they kind of preferred them because to have electric cameras out in the out on location, you have to take these big old wet batteries, and it was just it was a hassle. You know, for instance, if a camera guy is 
a quarterback's going back to pass when he's cranking at his normal speed. Now that quarterback winds back and he throws that football. Well, he starts cranking the camera just a little bit slower, and that makes the football look like it's going really fast. Mm -hmm. And then when the guy catches it, he starts cranking it back up to speed again and then makes it go, cranks it very fast so the football player is running in slow motion. This is all stuff that they, they could dial right into the film as it went but nowadays of course technology inhibits that because everything runs on the same speed it's funny i'm thinking of the game charades that you know you don't speak but uh you you let people know if it's a book or whatever and the and i'm just remembering as you were talking about this you were making this hand motion and that's the hand motion in charades for if you're doing a movie you're well, holding something cranking. isn't that cool we're yeah. doing a very special edition of filmically perfect on 91.3 wyso we're going to call it our man at the loc we're talking our man to, at the loc <laughs> we're talking to George Williman, who is the uh, nitrate film archivist at the Library of Congress, now housed at Culpeper, Virginia. This is a filmically perfect <laughs> special show, Our Man at the LOC. <laughs> and George, I'd like to know how it happens exactly um, when you transfer the films from the original nitrate to the, what kind of plastic did you say it was, J-Todd? star Say it again. S-Star. S-Star. That's the brand name. It's a polyester film. Do you basically re-film it? Do you, or do you, I mean, how is that done? Well, it, it depends on the condition of the original material. If, if we have a negative that's in a really good condition and can take being run through a, a modern film printer, uh, then we will actually do what's called a contact print, where the original negative, and if it has a soundtrack, the original soundtrack also, will be sort of bound together with the new uh, film stock run through a printer together, and it actually, the two pieces of film actually come in contact with each other, and a light is shown, shown through the negative to register an image on the new film. Now, if it's in really bad shape, or if it's a, an odd film size, like, a, you know, before the standardization of, of the perforations, the little holes that run down the sides of the film that drive it through the projector, uh, some of those have to be done optically, where a you basically you mount it in a specialized projector, and you have a camera pointed at this projector, and you're basically refilming the entire movie frame by frame. And you can do it as slow or as fast as it needs to be. I mean, if there's you know if there's no sprocket holes left on the film at all, each frame can be registered by hand, which is a very long and tedious process, and you can just shoot it one frame at a time, almost like you're doing an animated cartoon. Now, George, the whole object of this is to replace the nitrate negative of the picture, correct? Right, or negative or print. It depends on what you start with. If we're really lucky, we have the negative. Uh, but so many of these films, especially ones that were made by companies that are no longer around, the negatives are long gone. Um, and all we have, or if we're lucky, we might have a fine grain but most times, especially in silent films, we'll just have a, an old viewing copy. But the negatives actually have these cement splices where they literally cut them by hand. Yes. And they're on nitrate, so they are very, very fragile, correct? They can be. Again, it depends on how well the film was taken care of and what year it was made. Uh, if nitrate's in good shape, it's a great film stock. I mean, to this day, I, mean, I would say as, as far as film stocks go, polyester film is the strongest. I mean, it's really, really strong. And then there's nitrate, and then there's safety film. Uh, I mean, nitrate can take a lot of beating. It's very clear. Um, it doesn't. It has. You know, it shrinks, but it doesn't shrink so bad. Uh, it, you know, we have negatives that are a hundred years old now. We can still make prints off of them. And the advent of safety film was around what year? About 1950-51. So everything was nitrate through World War II and just after it, correct? Yeah. Who invented that? What an odd, I mean, what an interesting confluence of technologies that, that made this flammable... Did they make ball balls out of that and they used to explode? Inter <laughs> yes, interestingly enough, 
nitrate film was invented, quotation marks, invented by a, an, an Episcopal minister, um, Reverend Hannibal Goodwin from New Jersey. He did these slideshows back in the, in the 18... Uh, 1887, I think, is when he's said to have developed it. Just 20 and, years and, after the Civil War thing yeah. that. My and heavens. He, I got the manual out. Hold on. It says, defer to George Woolman. <laughs> he was, well, he was getting tired of because he'd always, you know, his glass slides were heavy, and they'd drop and they'd break. And he wanted to find something else to put his slides on. And he was kind of an uh, itinerant inventor, and he invented this nitrocellulose film. And nitrocellulose as a plastic had existed for some time, and, it had, and as, as JT was saying, some of the early forms of it, such as gun cotton, were very, 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 very explosive. And uh, the nitrocellulose plastic was just a further development. Of and they it. used it on ping pong balls, right? Yes, they still do. This day, uh, ping pong balls, good ping pong balls, are still nitrocellulose plastic. Son of a gun. And they will burn. <laughs> so careful with the friction on those. That's right. This is such a special edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3. A special edition of Filmically Perfect, our man at the Library of Congress. Like JT said, we're hey, talking hit that about music again, so we can do that really cool. First... <laughs> this is uh, this is, I think, a, a tune a fitting of, uh, of our man. Yeah. <laughs> this is a special edition of Filmically Perfect, featuring our man at the Library of Congress. George Willem. With his humble beginnings right here so, in the Miami I, Valley. I, I, I just, it just hit me that, that playing the tune from Exodus is kind of interesting, <laughs> seeing as I hightailed it out of Ohio and I'm now here in Virginia. Right. <laughs> Get out. Hey, George, i got to ask you this, because I know a lot of people, it's probably on their mind. At what point does the Library of Congress start doing digital restoration work? Because the digital realm is here, and it's 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 taking up the landscape. Right. Do you work from the nitrate negative, or do you just try to digitize the negative? Well, it depends. In, in the archival world, going from film to film is still the preferred uh, the preferred mode of operation, at least within the Library of Congress. We have started working in some digital. Uh, some digital preservation as well, again, for, for two types of films. One, again, films that are extremely beat up, that cannot be run through any sort of printing machine. And two, for this truly amazing and one-of-a-kind collection that the library has called the Paper Print Collection. What a lot of people don't realize is that up until 1912, there was no way to copyright a movie as a movie. There was nothing in the copyright law about movies. So if you were a filmmaker and you wanted to copyright your motion picture, you had to copyright it as a photograph. So what the companies would do, they would take their films and print them on long strips of 35-millimeter wide paper. Yeah, it looks just like a 35-millimeter piece of film, but it's paper with sprocket holes and everything, right? And you were kind enough to show me a few of those, and they are just stunning to see. So we now have this film, this uh, this new machine called a Kineta, and I believe the one we have is, is like Kineta number one, and it can be used to rephotograph. well, actually, I should say digitize these rolls of paper into a computer, which then we can go through, we can remove tears and cracks in the emulsion, we can uh, stabilize the image so it doesn't jump all over the place. And then when we're done, the neatest thing is we can then go and put it back onto film and make a brand-new negative and then print it as a film. Or we can make it into a digital file and put it is on Is the a company DVD. that makes a machine, are they, that company, is, is it called WAPA? No, it's not. No, it's, um, 
just Canetta. It's not Wapa Canetta? Not Wapa Canetta, no. <laughs> Boy, I stepped right in that one. Now i got to wipe my shoes off here. Our apologies go out to our, the city north of Dayton, Wapa Canetta. We just had to use that one. It was too much fun. <laughs> George, I want to know, you know, like the, I can't even remember the, the explorer's name, but the, the man who discovered the pyramids. You know, he'd been searching his whole life, and, and this happened, and, 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 you know, it was exactly what he hoped for. Did you, have you ever felt a moment like that when something came into the Library of Congress that you had just hoped against hope existed? And, uh, and Oh, yeah, a couple yeah. times. Uh, I think the biggest one for me was when we discovered, or I, I hate to say we, well, I discovered actually the, the original camera negative of the Great Train Robbery. You did? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Right. Tell, us, tell us, George. And actually, it was a stumbling across because it was at the time when I was basically a, you know, a, a, an hourly wage grunt inspecting film cans. But, you know, I came to, you know, Great Train Robbery, and I, you know, I knew what it was. I knew it was important, and I'd seen it before. And I started looking at this roll of film and realized that it looked a little different than... It was the original nitrate cut negative? Yes, the original nitrate cut negative. It is now 104 years old, and, and it is still usable. We can still make prints off of it. That's a miracle. First of all, what looked different to you? How did you... What was it that tipped Well, it? I mean, it, it was full of splices. Hmm. And, you know, most old prints, yeah, most old prints have some splices in it, but this had, like, lots of splices in it. And we took it out, and we started looking at it, and it was a negative. And there are certain clues on negatives that can tell you, you know, if it's an original negative or if it's a duplicated negative. And this was confirmed by our laboratory to be the original negative. So that's Man, that's that. pretty – would you say that that's the, the biggest – thrill that you've had working there as far as yeah. what you've discovered that's pretty cool george i mean that's the only the only historic. other one this, this has been a, a sort of a it's real not public. that story with al gore on the internet you figured you saw you you found it first right and al gore is still fighting you on that yeah oh darn the the only other one would be a couple years ago when when we discovered that we had a second negative of the barbara stanwick film Babyface. That's a great movie, man. It's and, on our list. Uh, and, and it turned out, I mean, when Babyface came out, the original cut was deemed a little too much, so they recut it. And somehow, and I don't know if we're really sure how this happened, but the original cut survived. It just kind of got shelved and forgotten about. And when we got the material from United Artists, when they, when they owned the Warner Brothers material, you know, we got these two negatives of Babyface, and nobody even really thought about it and put it on the shelf. But Just assume they were duplicates. Right, of the same right. thing. And then, wait, you know, I got out and on a sort of on a request from Washington. I went and got out both of the real one uh, negatives of Babyface and put one on top of the other and noticed that one was about, you know, 100 feet longer than the other one. Mm-hmm. like, wait a minute. So we started checking it out, and I knew the film very well, having, you know, had a copy of it on Laserdisc and, and went through, and it was different. There were differences all the way through it. And, and thanks that, to you guys, a lot of times you are able to make these motion pictures originally the way they were supposed to be in, be seen. Like when we did All's Quiet on the all Western on the Front, front. Yeah. you guys reassembled that to the way it's supposed to be seen. Right. So it, it's definitely an anti-war film and not how it can be contorted into a, so many different... Uh, People used it as for their own perspective over the years by editing, right? But because right. of the Library of Congress... Our man at the Library of Congress. <laughs> Hit that music. <laughs> no, not again. No. <laughs> because of our man at the Library of Congress, you're able to really get these things as close to the way they were because it's my impression that at one time motion pictures were considered just 
Just well, not, they were just, I mean, they were just like stock and trade. There was nothing special about them. But now they're considered culture and art, they right? They are right. little slices of our, of our history. But they were really placed as ephemera, and, and, and they were just exhibitions and things like that, right, I George? mean, yeah, one of the reasons that so much of this stuff doesn't survive was it was very deliberate. I mean, a lot of the early companies routinely destroyed their negatives when the film's run was over. It was a product. It wasn't an art. I mean, and they made there were, I mean, there were artists, sure. There were artists, you know, probably from day one. But for the companies, it was just product. And keep in mind, folks, that the studios back in the golden old days of making movies in the, the teens, 20s, and 30s made anywhere from 66 to 100 movies a year, and including yeah. the shorts. Like Columbia Pictures, I know, like in the 30s, uh, they were making 66 pictures a year, and that's including cartoons. Right. and They really had their own labs, very much like George's uh, place at, in, at Dayton when it was at Wright-Patterson. They had their own black-and-white film lab there. It was yep. fantastic, the largest black-and-white film lab in the world. It's, you know, it's something just occurred to me, uh, George, that, that maybe you know something about. It's not the Library of Congress, but it is. Uh, remember the um, early, the pioneer of, uh, of evening talk shows, Steve Allen? Yes. And that he, um, at one point, the sum total of the history of his shows were stored within the NBC vaults. And some guy, because they were running out of space, as I'm sure you're familiar with that thought, um, actually pitched him. Yeah, that happens a lot. And the other thing that happens, especially where television is concerned, and this is another part of our work, we not only do film, but we also are doing a lot with television and video, is that back in the early days of video, two-inch videotape was very expensive. So unless it was something really, really special, videotape routinely got reused. They would, you know, they'd run the show, they'd maybe save it for a rerun, and then the tapes would go back in and get bulky erased and used again. So, therefore, a lot of programming, now, a lot a lot of of programming has been lost. A lot of television stations would have film at 11 because they didn't have videotape, and that was 16-millimeter reversal film right. that they would show every day. They would say there's an accident out there, the place is burning down. They'd say film at 11. Because it took them that long to You waited until 11 o'clock to watch that house burn down. You know? right. and, now, and now those collections, you know, people are and, and archives are beginning to seek out those collections because... You know, if a famous person would come wandering through a small town, the film crew would run over there from the TV station and get probably some really unique footage of them that doesn't exist anywhere. Oh, and that stuff, a, a lot of that stuff is still around yeah. because it's on film. So where do these things come from? Um, George, like what is a – now certainly there's a state that, you know, when someone passes away, the executor maybe of the will realizes that this person has collected something of, of note and sends it to the Library of Congress. But there have to be some pretty bizarre and chance coincidental – Oh, yeah. I mean there's people find films and they move into a house. They find the films in a basement or an attic. Or uh, uh, probably one of the wildest ones was when they were excavating up in Dawson City, Alaska, uh, building a, they were, I can't remember what they were going to build, some new building. They torn down an old building, they started excavating for a basement and found you know, like 800 rolls of film being used as landfill. Oh. And because of the permafrost, <laughs> much of it was still in, in excellent condition. As we find out, perfect storage exactly. <laughs> conditions for the nitrate film. Wow, had you, did you get to see any of that or, or find yeah, out? We what... have we have what's left of that collection over there. And uh, all of it, I mean, almost all of it was, was rare and unique. Uh, you know, it was stuff that had been sent up to Alaska and nobody wanted to pay to send it back to the studio. So there you go. We're going to build a, build a base. No, they'll build a bridge <laughs> nowhere out there in Alaska. Well, we have uh, spent a half an hour with, uh, what are we going to call it? Hey, the hook's coming in, George. uh, The hook's coming in for you. There it is. 
Our man from the Library of Congress, George Williman. George, uh, thank you for letting us uh, spend an extended period here uh, picking your brain. And uh, by the way, just thanks on behalf of all of us for all the great work you do at the Library of Congress. Yeah, we really appreciate the Library of Congress. All your friends you work with, they're all incredibly nice people, and they've always been incredibly helpful. And we really appreciate all their time and effort into restoring the movies that we talk about every week. Yeah, we do have have the greatest crew of people in the world, and it's, it's a pleasure to work with them. And, uh, what do you mean that? J. Todd Anderson, thank hey, you very much for being here. Thank you very here. much. Drop us a line at perfectmovie.net. That's right. And uh, George Willeman, what a, t- what a treat. Always a pleasure. Thanks, and George. Thank that was today. incredibly informative. I'm Nikki Dakota. We'll meet you back here next time. Filmically Perfect Fridays on 91.3 WYSO. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please.